weary traveller, you have stumbled upon another FudzonFilm.com podcast. Tonight, we will be discussing, discussing, and discussing <laughs> a kind of magic. I am your host for this podcast, Craig Eastman, and with me, the ineffable Scott Morris. What are you buying, stranger? And the intractable Drew Tavendale. Good evening. <laughs> I decided that was better than insoluble. He's also insoluble, you ought to know. Uh, we will be comparing and contrasting 2006's two Magic Event movies for you this podcast, uh, those being The Illusionist and The Prestige. I would use the two go in, one come out uh, reference, but Scott's already done that in a previous podcast, and I lack the originality to come up with anything else. So without further ado, let us crack on. So boys, Magic and That. In the time-honoured tradition of uh, studios displaying a complete lack of originality or just absolute serendipity, 2006 saw... Or the, the thing that I think generally explains most of these, the fact that some poor schlub was selling his script around Hollywood and it got stolen. Oh, that's a, very... a good idea, but let's not pay for it from this guy and send him on his way. That's a very cynical view on things, Drew. Yes, I'm a terrible, terrible person. You and are. all those um, squeaky clean Hollywood folks would never do anything like that with all their clever accounting and whatnot. Yes. Like the one where Harry Shearer sued the makers of This Is Spinal Tap because apparently it's only made $27 in profit. <laughs> Seems legit. I fear we've gone off at something of a tangent already, gents. Yes, our, our usual compare and contrast format. So now that we can uh, sweep Hollywood accounting under the rug, uh, <laughs> Drew, would you like to kick us off with some sort of blab on the, <laughs> on the Illusionist? Based on a short story by Stephen Milhauser entitled Eisenheim the Illusionist, the Illusionist takes us to Van de Siècle Vienna, where Edward Abramovich, the son of a cabinet maker, falls in love with a girl named Sophie, who just happens to be a member of the Habsburg nobility. Being a duchess as she is, she is his social superior, and the two young people are not allowed to be together, eventually being separated first by force, and then by distance, and finally by time. Abramovich then travels the world, studying magic, illusion and mysticism, until, 15 years later, he returns to Vienna as a stage magician, now going by the name of Eisenheim, and looking like Edward Norton. After his prodigious skill becomes the talk of the city, he attracts the Crown Prince Leopold, played by Rufus Sewell, and his retinue to one of his performances. Amongst this group is Sophie, all grown up and, it is rumoured, soon to be wed to Leopold. Eisenheim impresses the prince and is invited to the palace to give a private performance for Leopold and his guests. He takes the opportunity to humiliate Leopold, a move which at first seems dangerously foolhardy, but turns out to be just one step in a scheme to frame Leopold for murder and allow the two lovers to escape together. In amongst this is Paul Giamatti's Inspector Uhl, an ambitious police detective on the make, who, as well as providing Eisenheim's backstory through an unwelcome and clunkily written narration, investigates Eisenheim on the prince's behalf, and attempts to have him punished after his new necromancy show raises seditious questions about the prince's part in Sophie's purported murder. Eisenheim and his co-conspirators raise sufficient doubts in the inspector's mind that he begins to suspect Leopold, and he eventually confronts him, which results, rather dramatically, in the Crown Prince taking his own life. So, so much for the plot. Do I think it's any good? Well, some of it, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so. don't, don't commit too readily now. <laughs> First, the good points. The film certainly looks appealing, the costumes in particular being of high quality, 
and the exteriors of Tabor in Prague, standing in for Vienna, give the setting an authentic period feel. Norton is an engaging presence, even if he is never particularly stretched. Likewise, Giamatti. While he can do this sort of role in his sleep, he gives a sort of professional and dependable performance that we can always expect from him as a bare minimum. Rufus Sewell is pretty good too. Perhaps stretched a little in some of the more impassioned moments, he's nevertheless very watchable, particularly when you add his bizarrely affected manner of smoking cigarettes. On the downside, the film isn't half as clever as it thinks it is. A film called The Illusionist was always going to have some sort of magic trick twist, but when Eisenheim is set up as being so smart and so observant, it's really asking a bit much for the audience to simply accept that he is unaware that he is being followed and overheard by detectives and imperial agents. This flaw is compounded by the fact that he is straight up told by Ull that he's being watched. As a result, we can be in little doubt that all is not as it seems when a duchess is found murdered. Add to this the convenience of crucial pieces of evidence being found in an imperial mm-hmm. stable that has apparently not been cleaned or mm-hmm. had its straw changed in several months, and the crime element falls rather flat. Alongside the aforementioned voiceover, and talking of voices, there's an entirely scattershot approach to which members of their cast attempt an Austrian accent and which think that the Habsburgs ruled from England. Jessica Beale's role as Sophie, complicit as she is in the plot, is largely reduced to damsel in distress, as she has, and perhaps because of the time and place, very little agency. The score, which I don't actually remember even really noticing, was by sonic sadist Philip Glass, though the commission must have caught him in a period of kindness because I don't recall my ears bleeding as a result of his usual auditory warfare. (laughs) All in all, it's a slight, if well-produced piece of entertaining fluff that can probably provide a couple of hours of mild entertainment, but it's never going to instill any real magic in the audience. Yeah, I always consider it was massively overshadowed by the prestige when it came out the same year, Mm. but this actually did a reasonable box office. Yeah, it's a decent turnover. Yeah, it was was like 86 million or something out of, um, after a budget of... 15-ish or something like that, wasn't it? 15, yes, that's not a bad return in the money. I was going to say, it's a considerably better return than the prestige managed, actually. Yeah, Yeah. for as low a budget as 16-odd million dollars, it looks... Really well produced. You got you got to love those check tax breaks, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Vienna. Yeah. Wink, wink. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of where it actually is, it does look really nice. It's a, it does look a, nice. A really lusciously produced film. Everything looks great. All the costumes look great. I have issues with the magic tricks used in this. When, <laughs> <laughs> along with um, what was that? Now you see it. Uh, film from a couple of years back. It's like, if if you need to use your CG to have the tricks being done on stage, just don't try and convince yes. me that this is going to happen at the turn of the century. Mm. <laughs> Technology. Yeah, don't don't show me a diagram of some cogs underneath a plant pot and yeah. think that that's going to explain <laughs> away it, yeah. the orange tree. I know it probably sounds a little silly, given we are comparing this to the prestige, where basically actual magic happens in one point in the film, but it did seem that in this film what they were trying to do was, yeah, there was actual magic going on because it was all just too good to be in any way feasible in the setting. And you know, as you say, Scott, because it was CGI. I, I almost forgive it that because, I mean, it's the magic's almost the least of, of the film. It's uh, more about the relationship and the obsession that Eisenhain had for uh, Jessica Biel's character. And mm. it's 
quite entertaining in that basis. I think that, that I can almost buy that. The way that it stokes up the rivalry between Norton and uh, Sewell, I think, works quite well. Sewell is a, he does quite a good madman, I think, by the end of the film. I think he's a was kind of a captivating and engaging uh, foil for Ed Norton, who's mm. very much a minimalist in his performance in this one. He's uh, perhaps understandably playing his cards close to his chest. He, he, he plays he plays the self-centered, narcissistic, petulant plum quite quite engagingly. <laughs> he's actually he's quite he's quite good value for money in that role. And uh, Giamatti is just a joy to watch for most of this film. That kind of little, little gleeful moments and. Uh, enraged moments in cases. As you say, not stretching a man of his talents, but as a linchpin and really the, the main focal point for the narrative, I suppose, in terms of actually explaining what's going on uh, and kind of driving that thing along. I think he's underappreciated in a role which is really critical to the whole film, and without him, mm. yeah, there's there's not really much of a film here. Yes, uh, and it's good to see Eddie Marson as the... Uh, yeah, indeed. yeah, it's always good to see Eddie Marson, but he's never really given anything particularly interesting oh. to do in this film, unfortunately. Yes, I enjoyed it well enough. I put off watching this, I remember, for a good couple of years before it, after it came out. It just yeah. didn't really seem to interest me at all. I don't think I had a mm. particularly engaging trailer. And I remember being pleasantly surprised watching it. I think it's a, a pretty effective film. Um, it's quite enjoyable, but, and it, it deserves the success that it had. It's in no way as memorable as something like The Prestige is. It doesn't have the, the same flashbang wallop. There's a a fairly solid story running through it, and it's quite an enjoyable one, so uh, it is most certainly worth watching. I had a very similar experience to yourself, Scott. I paid some notice of it as it started doing the rounds, but it, I put it off for a long, long time because there was there was a point in my life when Ed Norton could do no wrong. And mm. if you think, he went from the People versus Larry Flint was a pretty strong opening gambit to his career, and he went from there to American History X and then Fight Club in like three moves. I think there was like one other film in between. Yeah. And even if there were some definite one for the studio deals in there, he still he still made the effort to give us other fantastic performances in The Score and Frida and The 25th Hour within uh, a couple of years of that. And I'm, Death to Smoochie. Well, uh, funnily enough, I'm, I'm the guy who even kind of liked Death to Smoochie. But by the time we got to Red Dragon and the lamentable remake of The Italian Job when it creaked out of its MOT bay, <laughs> Um, there were definite hints of fatigue in his performances, and uh, and by the point of that Italian job remake, it was pretty clear that he couldn't really be arsed making much of an effort with the big studio stuff anymore. Yeah. So I, I think in the four years between then and The Illusionist, uh, why am I having such difficulty pronouncing the word illusionist tonight? Between that and The Illusionist coming out four years down the line, I'd kind of I'd kind of fallen about out of love with old Ed. And I made a half-hearted attempt to watch this on DVD at some point in the months after it became available on home formats, but I distinctly recall tuning out after about 20 minutes, even, even though it's got Paul Giamatti in it, who we know now instantly improves any movies in by, what, at least 20 percentage points? Mm. Um, <laughs> the offer, offer does not apply to San Andreas. There are provisos. I, I probably, I can only think that I saw, I don't know, I must have seen a bee outside my window or something and been distracted because it's not, it's not terrible. I mean, it's, it's not the best film we'll be talking about tonight, but in fairness, it's not the worst film that I've watched this week either. So not by some appreciable margin and everything, everything about its conception and its assembly reeks of competency in much the same way that a piece of Ikea furniture is pretty hard to once you've properly cleared the living room floor and counted out the dowel rods and such. As a 
as a piece of writing, it's good. It's not inspired. Visually, it's a pretty decent comfort blanket. Performance-wise, everybody involved has definitely done better, but they've also done a lot worse. And Neil Berger, as a director, has at least demonstrated on uh, one more occasion that he knows the difference in length between the bolts that come in the packet (laughs) and the fact that the locking nuts, although subtly, actually come in two different depths. So he's kind of a steady hand at the teller. And it's, it's obvious that as a movie, it's got it designs on something much greater. Um, and it would no doubt like to think it's got this great twist in its final act, though you'd be hard-pressed not to see it coming a mile off, especially if you refute, as you point out, um, it's got the invocation of what at first appears to be actual magic. Um, but it never quite lives up to the promise of the... Uh, the spectacle of its its central character and the performance he delivers on stage every night to his enthralled clientele. But, I mean, when all is said and done, it's a decent piece of entertainment and it's it doesn't do anything exceptionally well, I would argue, but it also doesn't do anything particularly wrong. So mm. if you've got a spare hour and 50 minutes to kill, I'm not going to plead with you not to watch it. A competent little affair. I'm trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to mention. I don't think there was anything else I really wanted to say about it. It's just one of those films that's kind of there and it's all right. Yeah, yeah. The thing sometimes it does feel very much like damning something with faint praise. Like, mm. it's like in most respects, the film is entirely competent. But yeah, there have seen so many films over the years where basic competency is something they haven't even aimed for, let alone achieved. That yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And in that and decently made film, and it's reasonably entertaining, and you don't always need anything more than that. Yeah, and in that respect alone, I suppose it helps tip the scale, and I think it falls on the the decent side of indifference. As opposed, to, as opposed to the turgid side of it. it. Normally a film like this, it relies so heavily on such a protracted series of contrived events that um, the narrative has to wind its way through in order for this payoff. It's not, it's one of those films that thinks, or one of those scripts rather, that thinks it's doing something clever simply by being a bit labyrinthine. But if you take a step back and look at the Rube Goldberg mechanism that is the plot points in this film that are required for the for the final payoff, normally that would really, really make me angry and put me off a film. But it didn't bother me so much here. And I kind of feel like it's because the rest of the film was doing enough to win me over that I didn't really begrudge it that. It was the one really egregious sort of aspect of it that I, that I, I thought I, I could take exception at that if I was in the mood to be a real dick. But... I'm enjoying the rest of it enough that I kind of want to see it through and I don't mind. Those bits did bother me, as I mentioned earlier. The ludicrous nature of finding the evidence, that sort of thing. But yes, I think it had built up enough goodwill for me that I wasn't openly scoffing at that as I might have done with other films. Mm. It's more just, I considered that more of a disappointment rather than a big, big problem, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does indeed make sense. Um, so like I said, I suppose not the, not the best movie we'll talk about tonight, but uh, interesting enough, little affair, and uh, let us talk a little bit about The Prestige, Scott, if you don't mind. Oh yes, uh, this is a film largely about Alfred Borden, Christopher Bale, and Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman, the hugest of all the Jackman. We're introduced to them as what amounts, I suppose, to apprentice magicians. Uh, they work as audience plants or stooges and technical gophers for a stage magician to whom Angier's wife, Julia, fulfills the Debbie McGee role. Uh, One stunt involves the miraculous escape of a rope-bound Julia from a tank of water. 
a slightly less miraculous once one knows the knots are tied by two entirely arbitrarily chosen members of the audience that always happen to be Borden and Angier. Things are swell for all of about four minutes in the film before Julian Borden decides to do a bit of experimentation in knot selection, which goes rather fatally wrong for Julia. Uh, this is the start of a rivalry, seems like a underplaying the relationship somewhat between Borden and Angier, as their fates are intertwined throughout their lives. This tale was told in something of a fractured narrative, so I think it actually starts off with Borden being on trial, where he's about to be found guilty for Angier's murder, so you kind of know where this is, where this arc's heading um, as it goes along. Uh, but in broad strokes, the player's rivalry continues and escalates throughout their burgeoning careers, uh, coming to a head once Borden unveils his masterwork, The Disappearing Man, a seemingly impossible trick which sees him move from cabinet to cabinet. But of course, Borden, being the rough London type, does not have the showmanship with which to uh, immediately capitalise on his success, and Angier decides to steal his trick to the best of his abilities, including a... I don't particularly want to detail that, actually, although it does mean if you don't go talk about it in too much depth, you don't have the opportunity to talk about the fantastic drunk Hugh Jackman, which is a, one of my favourite kind of supporting characters in a role. The tale is of them trying to one-up each other, inflicting various wounds, both physical and mental, as they go throughout their lives, and it's really a tale of the intense rivalry between them, uh, which drives Angier to the point of obsession. Uh, he absolutely must find out how this disappearing man trick is done, which leads him to uh, head off to see the recluse Nikolai <laughs> Tesla in his... Uh, of course. <laughs> played, of course, by everyone's favourite, David Bowie, and his accent, whatever that is. Um, Majestic, I think you'll find, sir. <laughs> yes, yes, that's where he's from. He's from Majestic. Yes. <laughs> where that accent comes from. Uh, of course, Tesla, the uh, scientific genius who was cruelly sidelined by Edison because his, <laughs> his his technology of arcing electricity throughout the air just randomly was seen as dangerous for some reason. That's right. Yes. <laughs> I can't think why. <laughs> In an age before risk assessments and method statements. <laughs> <laughs> you expect me to have a certificate of li- insu- what was it? <laughs> liability insurance, Mr. Angia? <laughs> Scott, you're suggesting the scene where there's basically an indoor lightning storm is um, it's ridiculous <laughs> that the people weren't any way put off by that. Yes, I can't imagine why anyone would have been perturbed by such a no. by such a display. Again, in an age before home insurance. Yes. <laughs> Tesla does the impossible and builds a teleporting machine just before he's run out of town by Edison's goons, which leads, of course, to the events which sees Borden in trouble at the start of the film. Um, it's... A really interesting narrative, perhaps something I didn't see coming in the first instance because it did actually invoke magic rather than science as it claims when it goes to see things like Tesla, but when Tesla's actually just making a, a straight-up duplicating machine that can clone humans, it's like, well, um, perhaps it's sidestepping some chains of narrative responsibility there, but nonetheless it's a, a really enjoyable yarn. And if you take it as that, it's it's uh, enjoyable enough on a narrative sense. What, of course, really takes this one step above is the committed performances by both Hugh Jackman and Christopher Bale, both really putting their hearts into this. And you can really, I think, really feel a sort of rivalry and hatred between these two characters. I think that does come across very well, this obsession they have with each mm-hmm. other, as it turns out throughout the piece. And that's really the, the dynamic that makes it so uh, engaging to watch. Uh, tremendous support, of course, from... Michael Caine as well as the uh, Angier's ingenue, 
Michael Caine, Christopher Nolan's Good Luck Totem, I believe. <laughs> Pretty much, isn't it? Also, it's another film that just looks absolutely stunning. Uh, lots of really nice period detail, and whereas uh, The Illusionist was going for a, a fairly sanitised, nice, shiny uh, view of things, uh, the Prestige is more than happy to get a bit more dirtier and grittier. Not not too dirty and gritty. It's not like Victorian London was a... It's not like it's in favelas or anything, but it does uh, play at points to the wars a, a somewhat more street ethos compared to The Illusionist. But it's still a, a, a tremendous piece of production design. It looks incredible all the way throughout. Yes, I, I really heartily enjoy The Prestige. Perhaps this is going to be remembered as one of Chris Nolan's minor works, which is absolutely baffling, given that it is a film that would be pretty much any other director's best work had they <laughs> yes, produced it, yeah. you know what I mean? But I feel this kind of get lost in the Nolan shuffle. It's, uh, I think it's not that it wasn't an impactful film at the time, but I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle. It couldn't match up to the pop culture impact that the likes of the Batman films had, or Inception perhaps. Yeah, yeah. so it was released the year after Batman Begins, and it was sort of, I think possibly because of that, and maybe it was too, but it was sort of seen as a an off project. Yeah. Like, oh, we've made Batman Begins now, and we'll have a wee rest, and we'll make this smaller, lighter thing. But it's by no way small and light, you know. No, no, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) puts the idea in people's head that this is like the B project that they were doing as a rest between the two first Batman films, but it's so much more than that. To be honest, I've watched this quite a few times, and it's still something that I find almost enjoyable now as I did then. Uh, mm, me too. I'm sure there is some quibbles. I was looking through a review that I wrote 10 years ago and I had a few, but to be honest, mm. none of them particularly bother me. I just find it an incredibly enjoyable film and I don't really care about its uh, yeah. minor little quibbles or attractions with it. You can pick fault with it, but I, you know, I sat there last night, I watched this, I caught up, there was this again last night, and that's probably about the fourth or fifth time that I've watched mm. it, and I enjoyed it more on this viewing than any previous one, and I sat back, I was sitting watching it in bed on my iPad, and I sat back and I thought to myself, I actually think this is Nolan's best film. You know what? It's, you could make a very strong case for it, and it would mm. only be underwell, undermined by other films being incredibly great. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of one of those people that's kind of st- probably swing towards Memento than anything else, mm. just because I impacted the first one. But I really, really like The Prestige. It is amongst my favourite films. Be, if someone had, If I lost my memory in a memento sense and someone told me that the prestige was my favorite chris nolan film i would have no reason to doubt them mm-hmm. put it that way i think yeah. it, it, i mean it does it does suffer if you you can find flaws with it if you want to you want to dig deeply i mean it, it does still suffer from the same crime that the illusionist did and that at some point it does actually still invoke magic because they have yeah. to come up with a teleportation machine yeah. <laughs> um which is insane but if you can see past that and some of the obvious stuff i mean it thinks even at the time i remember thinking uh, the character of Fallon, who is clearly supposed to be this big revelation at the end of the film when it turns around and you find out the nature of Fallon, but throughout the whole film, all you can think is, who is this person in the very bland, <laughs> obvious makeup who isn't a recognisable actor and who's hanging around silently in the background while all this is going on? I wonder if he's going to turn out to be a plot point. Yes, he does um, seem to be suspiciously off camera for most of the time, doesn't he? It's mm, almost as though he's been deliberately framed out of a lot of shots. Exactly. Yeah. They also <laughs> um, have the problem too, though, is when you do see him, it's like, he looks a bit like Christian Bale makeup then, right? <laughs> and it is, it is like a lot of Chris Nolan's films um, and penned by Nolan and his brother Jonathan, I think. This, it, it was, this one was. Yes. But, yeah, yeah. It is very densely plotted and... Uh, fortunately on this occasion there's actually although it is very densely plotted and there are a lot of layers of this and there's a lot going on thematically as well it's one of the more coherent efforts 
from the Nolan stable and that pretty much everything works out in the end and follows follows its own internal logic pretty well. You can't, yeah. if you're willing to go with the plot contrivances, you can't really pick a lot of fault with them from that point of view. Uh, and it's actually really quite rewarding. I mean, I was still noticing some stuff on this watch through that I hadn't on my previous viewings. So it's it's a very rewarding rewatch. And uh, yeah. yeah, I do genuinely think there's a case to be made for this being his, his best film. Yeah, I don't know if I would say his best, but certainly I would not argue against anyone who said that too. Mm. The thing that maybe would be a problem for a lot of people, I think, would be the, yes, the invocation of actual magic at the end. But that bothers me less because the film isn't, in the end, so much about the the illusion of the craft around it. It's about obsession. And mm-hmm. then you've effectively shown that somebody has become so obsessed that he's more or less sold his soul to the devil. Um, you can imagine what sort of effect that Anger's killing of himself every night has on his soul and his psyche. So that's a device to get to that. So that's why it doesn't bother me in the way that it may in other films. Yes, there is the problem with Fallon in that like, necessarily you don't see him, but then it immediately makes you think, hmm, he's significant then, surely, because every other <laughs> yeah. assistant's been shown. Um, Michael Caine is front and centre as <laughs> the great Danton's um, ingenue. So why isn't Fallon there? And yes, there's a problem to it. It's like, yes, he looks like Christopher Bale in makeup when you do see him. Is there such um, a thing as Chekhov's ingenue? <laughs> maybe but what is one of the things that makes it so rewarding to rewatch is just how cleverly it's written because that's i've not watched this in a few years now but watching it again yesterday i'm just struck again by all the lines that have a double meaning when you watch it the second time mm-hmm. that are so innocent first time around because there there are things that people say about him saying uh, christian bale's talking about one half of me felt this and the other half didn't and it's like well, people speak like that all the time and so mm. it's so innocent without any obvious hidden meaning Yeah. the first time. You watch it a second time and it, the script is absolutely jammed full of little references like that. We're having a split personality or being in two minds and, and Yeah, his wife's saying that on certain days she believes it when, she, when he says he loves her on other days she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. The film is so full of that and it's just so artfully written that you just do not notice that the first time around at all because it's an entirely normal thing for people to say it's actually a feat of magic in and of itself that they managed to fit this into just a little over two hours like probably presumably about two hours on the button if you take credits out it's a it's a very tight script and everybody's on top form here for again something that seemed like it was the off project between batmans but there's not a bad performance in it the direction is really, really assured. I mean, Nolan could probably do this in his sleep, but that's because he's just so very good at it. It's something I've probably watched a good six or seven times, and I enjoy it just as much every time. Indeed. So I don't think there's any... I mean, comparable in a lot of senses, but I don't think there's any great debate as to which of these is a better movie, right? Oh, not at all. Not with me. No, no. Uh, it's interesting to see that there are films that have broadly similar capsule reviews but they're mostly taking very different approaches to production, very different styles they've chosen to go for, and I think both are valid, but pretty clearly The Prestige is a far more interesting and rewarding film, certainly when viewed multiple times now. It's never failed to not reward me when I go back and watch it again. So clearly a better film in that regard. Yeah, I think a much more interesting central dynamic on the kind of obsession that these characters are having on each other. And yes, very nice film indeed. Indeed. There you go. That's a short and sweet episode for you, isn't it? 
relatively painless. We will be back in 10 days approximately uh, with another episode, with our intermission episode for November. But I suppose until then, uh, look after yourself and others. And uh, yes, I have been Craig Eastman. Scott was Scott. Goodbye. And Drew was Drew. Fairly well. Speak to you soon.